Listeners, we would like to thank our supporters on Patreon. That is Nick, Justin, Matt, Matt, Teddy, Paul, Grace, Alex, Sam, Jory, Sherry, Tara, the Reverend Slangenstein, and Annalise. Thank you for your money. We are stockpiling it so that we can use it to do fun and exciting things. Like what? What are you stockpiling the money for, Joe? I think we should stockpile it so we can invest in our new product idea, which is uh, heart-shaped heating pads. That way you have a strangely warmed heart. That's and a it, good just idea. very Methodist. If you have got $5 or more a month to spare and would like to help us do fun stuff like make those heating pads or make new and exciting merch or go on the road, you can join our supporters over at patreon.com slash WTHIAP. You also get access to the Patreon-only podcast feed, which has bonus content and the Patreon-only podcast that Ian and I record, which is called Pillow Talk. We have not recorded this week's episode, and we may not because Ian is uh, sick. So maybe I'll just sit and talk about things that I like to talk about. It'll be a shower thoughts for Pillow Talk. Shower thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> you know how you talk to yourself in the shower? <laughs> you know how you just think of random things? Like, how do they decide what goes in a sewing kit? That one button is never helpful. That's what it'd be. So if you're interested in paying for that content, <laughs> you can head over that to the is, Patreon. That is the best idea Joe could come up with on the fly. <laughs> And uh, it'll be worth every penny. Your every subscription. single penny. If you don't have any pennies to give us, though, there are still ways you can help us out. You can subscribe to us on the podcasting app of your choice, wait and review us on Apple Podcasts, share us on the platform of your choice, or follow us on Twitter or Facebook, or just keep listening because that is good too. It is. And now, on to the show. One, two, five, nine. Father, preacher, servant, leader, rector, reverend, deacon, elder, what the hell? Welcome to What the Hell is a Pastor, a podcast about life and set-apart ministry. Each week, we draw on our experiences and challenges as current and former pastors to figure out what the hell it is that pastors do and how to do it as best we can. Listeners, on the podcast this week, we have my friend Melanie, who I met when I was studying at Edinburgh, getting our science and religion master's degrees. Melanie is doing a PhD program, and so I'm just going to kick it straight over to you to tell me what you're doing. Introduce yourself to our listeners in as much information as you want to share. Hello. Yeah, thank you, Joe and Ethan, for having me. I'm a longtime listener, first-time caller, as they say. I'm a, I'm a PhD candidate at Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena, California. I'm a post-comps. I'm working on my dissertation proposal. Nice. I study uh, ethics of information technology. So I'm working on, my mentor's got a new book out called New Covenant Ethics. Hak Jun Lee is his name. And I'm taking his model of, of New Covenant um, as a frame to evaluate wearable tech and information age, those kinds of things, interpersonal covenant relationships. Nice. This is going to be an episode where I say a lot. So what does that mean? Because there was a lot in there that I'm like, I know all those words separately, but together they're new. Um, yeah. <laughs> I remember when we were in Edinburgh and you were studying transhumanism, which is like the guy who got the the eye stock installed into his brain so he could see colors, you yeah. know, stuff where you were going beyond what um, we can do without particular technology integrated into our systems. And so people hear, they might hear transhumanism and they're going to think, I have six definitions for what that might be. So we're going to do right. a lot of that. Just get ready to explain. Right. I mean, that's the reason why you invited me on the podcast, because, yeah, science and religion. I lead a student group at Fuller for science and religion, so I've still been active there. And that's how I got to this topic. Yeah, just right. that, that idea of the natural and what's good about it. And that Ooh. comes up in all sorts of different facets of, you know, the public sphere and these contested issues, you know, climate change, abortion, masks and vaccines, you know, uh, in every issue, science and religion, the, that kind of question of the natural and the good always tends to come up. And transhumanism, certainly, you know, the black mirror kind of stuff. That's the mm -hmm. most entertaining side of it. So that's that's kind of the, the area I've gone to with it. How did you get interested in in these questions? Like I came to science and religion because I wanted to I mean, like in my heart, I wanted to go to people who told me that you couldn't be a scientist and a Christian at the same time and tell them, haha, I have proof that you can now. Uh, but I don't think you were as vindictive when you got into the 
So how did you get into science and religion? Well, yeah, that's, that's a good point. And I want to say too, because I wanted to say this at the beginning, Joe, I, I, when I think of you, I think of you as an exemplar of Christian faith in a lot of ways. Because of that kind of a thing that you do, of you're very hospitable and generous with your conversation, but you're just as critical, inquisitive. You know, we when we were in Edinburgh, we would talk a lot about um, holding opinions with a closed or an open hand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we decided it was better to hold strong opinions loosely than to hold weak opinions strongly. And yeah. you and your conversation, you're so good at, um, I, I heard in a recent episode you did, you, your therapist pointed out that you do yes, but I do a lot of things. <laughs> I was like, yeah, that's what I think about. But I think in a lot of ways, it's a great model of how to, how to approach these kind of contested issues like science and religion. You are quick to see the good in things and then to push it to improve the quality of disagreements. Mm. So I came at it more relationally. My mentor in college was a computer scientist, and he created the science and religion program at Samford University, where I went to school. And he was very optimistic, encouraging. He was excited and passionate about science and religion, and that was a way that I could study everything. So I said, sure, let's do this. And so artificial intelligence was what he was interested in, since that was his area of expertise. And so that's how I got involved with transhumanism, working with him on his research and that kind of a thing. So it's not out of, I'm not, I don't love technology. My husband's a cybersecurity engineer and he's, he's more skilled in this area and I don't, I don't love it, but I see how important it is, how it intersects with the more day-to-day questions as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it's a great way to help the church be prepared to have uh, something proactive to say and not just reactionary. So that's why I've kept with it. Yeah, I love that. I mean, it's something as simple as like, what are the ethics of pacemakers? Like we get those installed on people's hearts. Don't even think twice about how how that happens. But like what happens when you go the next step beyond a pacemaker? What if it's something that is impacting how your brain functions? What if it's wearable technology under your skin that determines which rooms you can get into in places? Yeah. Even just little things like Earlier today, I, when I was when I was looking you up on Facebook, Ethan, um, <laughs> you know, and, and I realized we used to dump all of our photos on Facebook because that was the way that we shared with friends. That was, you know, there weren't there weren't the private ways that you do now on Google Photos and things like that. And so even little things like that now, we, people don't do that because of privacy and security concerns. We know we know better. The world has come of age, and uh, you know, just little day-to-day things like that too it has a big effect how you see um science and the tools that we use and whether they're acceptable or not Hmm. yeah well i actually kind of want to know uh just because i like this stuff i want to know about did you so before i ask a question you said you went to samford university yes birmingham alabama in alabama yeah okay beast and divinity schools at samford right am i making that yes Okay. Yes, that's right. I've got you. I got you. I actually, so I'm in no way an evangelical. That's just not my thing. But okay. uh, Samford and Fuller are like two evangelical schools that I like actually have a decent amount of respect for. <laughs> like, and, and I'm interested in their like projects and the stuff they do. So like, I kind of want to know, I'll start with Fuller. Like, do you like Fuller? Like what, what drew you to Fuller as a place to do the work you wanted to do in your PhD program? Yeah, I've, I've loved Fuller. And again, me coming to Fuller was another relationally guided decision. I've got a sister and brother-in-law who live in Long Beach and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, scholarship as well, right? Right. Fuller was a place I could come. But it was uh, Nancy Murphy's here. Nancy Murphy, Joel Mm -hmm. Green, Warren Brown, and the work that they did on the soul. And, you know, Joel Green did, he just took some time to do neuroscience work. Right. While he's doing this, that, and the other thing, you know, he's, but taking the time out to really um, ask the questions, do the work, be informed, make sure that, you know, he's not an expert still in it, but, you know, you do what you can to have the conversations. And so I really, I really admire that model of collaboration, of discourse. And Wright Fuller has a very unique position in being very moderate, Mm -hmm. in really trying to stand in the gap, find those uh, creative transformative initiatives and to um yeah to work for the benefit of the church and the world 
Yeah, that's awesome. Every seminary right now is struggling, and Fuller's yeah, struggling as well. Yeah, but totally renewed my faith in a lot of um, a lot of important ways. That's cool. Oh, that's, that's really great. Good. Yeah, because I think I have heard so recent, so much recently from people that like everything is. Um, tearing down not only like their faith in humanity but like their faith in like everything you know it's it's a difficult world to live in so when somebody's like you know here's something restorative it's like oh great that exists it exists somewhere yeah yep there's there's good work being done as you guys talked about bonhoeffer in a recent episode as well and i keep saying i mean if if uh, if my friends listen to this i kept saying uh, recently uh, when bonhoeffer says you know christians believe that christ is alive so it's Christ working through us. One of those obvious things. It's just like, oh yeah, do I do I believe that? You know, I don't. I don't think that's really how I've been living. So that's that's one of those things that completely changes your perspective. That's true, and it's something that um, can change how you interact with the subject material that you're just academically studying, right? Like you're, I, I don't believe that your call is at all to be in pastoral ministry, like leading a congregation. You, unless I'm very wrong, I'm just watching your face. Okay. <laughs> I lead a neighborhood group. My church, my church um, specifically ministers to Caltech students. So students of science. Nice. And so I lead a neighborhood group. And um, so it's, it's pastoral work, but no, I, yeah, I, as far as me being a pastor, I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah. Not that, like, um, uh, finding a denomination and, like, really cleaving to it and working within those structures. Right. Um, you have always been more, yeah, church-oriented in that sense. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, uh, is uh, a blessing and a curse. Right now in the UMC, it's a curse. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, yeah, so I, even in... Um, finding ways to do ministry when ministry is not the way that you make money, right? It's not your full-time job and finding ways to just um, naturally or organically live out your discipleship in like every aspect of your life. Like that can be such a complicated thing to do in higher education because you are um, both having to have that objectivity that allows you to, well, objectivity or uh, at least aware of your bias as you come into uh, the things that you're studying, but also knowing that like you never leave all of yourself at the door, regardless of where you go. So figuring out how to um, function in the world as if Jesus is alive and is living through us in everything that we do, including in what we study, um, but also not, um, I don't know, evangelizing to our peers at work. You know, it's difficult to right. find that place. Right. Okay. Yeah. I guess something that I've learned from science and religion, the way that I kind of have structured this since I study ethics, is the relationship between indicatives and imperatives. Hmm. You know, ethics ethics flows from identity. That's that's a I found to be a pretty good starting point. You know, who you are, things that you're interested in in spiritual language. You know, you could say that you're calling. You know, hmm. your identity. That's where you kind of start to determine what should I do. You know, how am I joining God's work in the world? Those kinds of things. So that's an indicative. Indicative is an easy way that we understand, you know, science to help us understand what is the facts, what is those kinds of things, which are always related to the imperatives. What should we do? What are our obligations because of what is and what should, you know, being becoming those kinds of things. So when it comes to being a Christian, doing ministry in the public sphere, especially in academia where you're trying to use the best critical tools and methods mm. to be both faithful and effective i mean i guess it's there's you you can't you can't engage in the world unless you're engaging from a particularity right you can't help other people unless you know who you are and your own identity and that's something that you you do as you know wesleyan you know you know where you stand but you're so open to listen and to meet people where they are, that kind of a thing. Yeah, it's the kind of way that if you if you just use a bunch of um, slogans or, or hop onto popular uh, causes, right? That always runs out of steam. It's not very substantive. People have a hard time. You can't you can't engage with somebody when they're just you know retweeting that kind of a mm -hmm. thing. You have to know who you are, what you care about, what do you know, where do you fit into this conversation, and I think that's what we do as Christians. Yeah, no, I think that's really true. Ethan, I, I see, I see you nodding. I see you thinking. What comes up to you out of that? Because I, 
I realize that I don't know like where where ethics starts from. So Melanie, when you started off with like ethics kind of starts from who you are, I was like, oh, I would not, never in a million years would I have come up with like that statement. So does that, Ethan, does that strike you as true as well? Or um, or do you have like nuancing thoughts or questions? Um, no, I think that makes, that makes a certain amount of sense to me. I, I wonder, you know, I, my, my interest in ethics is, is, kind of inflected by you know demonic forces and and powers and 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 those things that that kind of cause us to to do things that you know if, if the if a gun was to our head we would say it is not who we are i'm not always sure if that paints the whole picture but i think i agree you know like like i think i would say well sure like our our day-to-day kind of moral work in the world uh, flows out of our sense of who we are. I think that's true. Yeah. Bonhoeffer says that, right? That in those times of exceptions, that is where you're, that is equally who you are. You know, oh, oh, sure. Th- yeah. Those, those kinds of things. But that, that just points to the importance of daily formation and, you know, yeah. you, you practice all these things to prepare for those times of exception, that kind of a thing. Yeah. Sure. Hmm. Sure. I mean, does that change? So I feel like, tell me if I'm wrong, I feel like science and religion often, um, there's there's two spheres. There's the like historical side of it that says that like our um, rational inquisitive thought that we kind of see embodied in like institutions of science now and the scientific method has always played together with our faith and how we understand a more spiritual side of the world. So there's that kind of trying to fight against the science and religion conflict narrative side of science and religion. And then, and maybe there's a third sphere that's like medical ethics, but then there's another sphere that is uh, really optimistic about what the future might be. Like it's, it's the like Tehard kind of new sphere. We're going to go and like the world is going to end up in a better place or um, that technology might aid us to go do new things or, you know, kind of this this positive spin on stuff, like looking positively toward the future. So does science and religion have that space to talk about what we do in those spaces of exception, those spaces where like bad ethics have gotten into, into our technology and how we use it? Or does science and religion kind of leave like those societal woes to other ethicists? Well, last summer when Black Lives Matter were leading all their protests. In 2020 or 2021? 2020, I guess. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah, I guess two summers ago. Um, that was something that a lot of science and religion organizations, you know, religion and public life uh, groups were leading conversations about the history of science, the injustices that it's enacted against, you know, minority marginalized populations and communities, and um, the role of trust in the public sphere. Mm. You know, all these kinds of things that, you know, from from eugenics to racism and the way that science has been co-opted to perpetuate injustices, all those kinds of things. And so that was a lot, uh, that was uh, dominant in science and religion conversations. And the conclusion was always, you know, science is not an ethic, right? In, in your terms, Ethan, you know, that's the temptation, that's the power of science. It, it's so, it, because it yields these technologies that are so powerful that we can trust and it is so tempting to just take that extra step to be like, oh, yeah, my, I have a very naturalistic um, philosophy. It's based on science, so we can trust it. I just do science. But that's, um, you mentioned, you pulled out gluttony, Ethan, as mm-hmm. one yeah. of the powers that you're most interested in and how that leads to apathy. Mm-hmm. And I saw that in, in science and religion as well, having that kind of just um, uncritical trust in science as a philosophy, overstepping the quantitative bounds of what it can actually accomplish, it leads you to a kind of apathy because there's no need for change because, well, this is just how it is, you know, and you could say the same for any kind of like liberal, that, that positive um, belief that you were talking about, Joe, that second type that you were talking about, 
the optimism that if we just keep going this way, then things will just get better. Um, so that was something that came up a lot during the during the protests of 2020. And I think that's a just a positive thing that we need to keep realizing is that science is not a philosophy, that facts are related to values, and that we need to remember that they're on the same spectrum. But I always say science is necessary, but not sufficient. Mm-hmm. Sure, sure. Yeah, I think that I think that my, you know, as you kind of interrogate like a phenomenology of what powers do or like what demonic forces do, like one of the first things they do is present themselves as sort of a part of the natural framework of reality, like we present themselves as a part of the furniture, like nothing to see here, guys. This capitalism is as old as time, you know, <laughs> like, or, or nothing to see. And, and, and so like, for me, I think that science, this is why, this is where my, my love of hurting Joe's feelings regarding science comes from. Yeah. That, that, and I'm a sadist and I like to watch Joe get mad at me. Who doesn't? <laughs> but, uh, but like, I, my, my, like, the constructive part in me that that is suspicious you know of science is that is well whenever something when, whenever a technique or a or a, a way of producing knowledge sort of presents itself as the default oh this is just oh all what we're doing guys is we're just doing what comes natural you know like mm-hmm. like i immediately am go well but that's not entirely true you know like we even just in the short history of the scientific method, we can point to things and say, we know that fre- phrenology is, is bullshit. Like, like we know that we know that studying, you know, uh, yeah. the skull to determine whether or not black people are really people is not, right. is a not scientific in reality, but right. B it was still presented as and agreed upon as science and right. just a part of the natural universe, part of the, right. the furniture of the right. world. Lots of things are natural that we're not living by. Exactly. We would never want to live by. We no longer like endurance stalk our prey in order to be able to eat, you know? <laughs> That's what <laughs> humans naturally do over history, right? That's a great sure. example. <laughs> Yeah. And the other thing that gets me about phrenology is that like that's peer reviewed science. I mean, there are scientists at the time being like, this is dumb. Why are we doing this? But there's also scientific establishment saying like, no, 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 this is a a good place to pursue knowledge. And so even when you try to get into, well, we have an academy of scientists who are here to help us figure these things out. uh, You know, like the academy still has its own problems and its own biases that it's grown out of. And so you do have to have um, you have to have that critique, especially since the academy is very white and very European, right? Like even as we incorporate yeah. in more voices, it's still what it is. Yeah. And I mean, look, it, postmodernity has given us more options. So engaging with the sciences as, you know, whether the content or just the kind of idea of method of rationality, mm. that's not mandatory anymore. You know, so I, I feel like a lot of theologians wonder, well, why why would I really have to care about the sciences or engage with that? But I would argue, I mean, just the importance that the sciences have in our world, and I think the pandemic has been a great reminder of that, mm-hmm. that we really need to do work to restore the place of science properly in society so that we know how we can trust it and, 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 its, and its importance, but also to, to be able to find those common grounds of reality those quantitative things that we can measure as a a starting point you know to talk about the indicatives so that we can find the imperatives together i i don't really see it as optional for theologians at this point of time at least in the west but my uh one ethics professor at uh uva uh willis jenkins who does ecological justice and Christian ethics and stuff like that. He said in a lecture that, um, you know, it's actually, you know, anybody who's interested in religion or theology or theological ethics, at least in the Christian tradition, must be, must have climate change and things like that as, as like, if not central, they must talk about it. It has to be there because we're, we're, we're talking about uh, something that is, you know, all-encompassing and we can't escape it and 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 it directly relates to the christian life and it directly relates to 
what we say about God and God's action in the world. If the world is falling apart, it's kind of hard to talk about God's action in the world unless we first talk about if the world is falling exactly. apart. Exactly. It's you such know? an important starting point. Yeah. It clarifies yeah. it. Looking at climate science, in our science and religion group, we don't actually talk about science. You know, we talk about, <laughs> we talk about um, epistemology. We talk about faith and reason. We talk about the philosophy of science, but we're not there to debate the facts of science because none of right. us are experts in that. Even though we have scientists and doctors and engineers in our group, we're not there to talk about the science together because we don't know. Right. But to be able to talk about climate, climate science, how it's done, why is it contested in the public? Um, you know, what, how, how our eschatologies, our views of God's action in the world, how are all these playing into what we assume about clients, climate science? Mm -hmm. Those kinds of things. Yeah, you, you have to be able to talk about that. And yeah. when you talk about that, I think that improves our theologies. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. Because I think it makes it more holistic, right? Like it, we have gotten to a place where everybody is so specialized that you, as you're studying things, you dive down into your rabbit hole. Like as PhD students, you both know that like you're going to become the world's expert on this tiny little aspect of knowledge and you're specialized. But then after that, you have to be able to pull back out and say, this is how what I know fits into the larger story. This is how um, what I do fits into who I am as a per person and how who I am as a person feeds back into what I know and, and what I'm able to teach and share with others. So I, I think that when it comes to science and um, science and faith, I think it's both key that theologians are able to identify their own philosophies of science, their understanding of science, and how science actually does inform what they do, but also then to be able to engage with people who are speaking about science as if it is a belief system, because that's going to affect the type of solutions that we come to for things like climate change, right? The people who think that all religious belief is a nonsense because of whatever reasons they have to bring it to it, they're going to then say, well, technology is the thing that's going to save us. Well, sure, technology is going to play a huge role in however we solve the climate crisis, but it is not going to be the only thing. And if that's our only solution, if we are not taking any other actions than seeking a MacGuffin to like solve all of the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, then, then we're screwed, right? It's just not going to be the solution right. I need because we got to be holistic about things. It's I think that's what I have learned a lot over the past couple of years of my life is that it's great to focus. It's great to learn as much as you can about a thing. But the only way we get out of the problems that we're in is by looking at it intersectionally, holistically. Yeah. That's yeah. my rant. I think we get to see the personalities of scientists more with social media. I mean, you know, Ooh. Elon and Twitter, right, is the latest thing. Right. So I think that's really helped people um, understand that we shouldn't trust scientists to deliver us. You know, the technology is not going to. Yeah. How did we get to NFTs and crypto? You know, it, how, <laughs> how did we get here? So I think people are more and more aware of that. But yeah, you mentioned the specialization of knowledge. Mm -hmm. And I think that's that's the crisis that we're facing. How do we know things? You can't possibly know everything that's out there. You have to be able to trust people. And mm -hmm. there's so many communities that you can listen to. So how do you choose who to trust? You know, it makes sense. I, I get it, the anti-vaxxers, you know? These are people with jobs. These are people who have responsibilities and lives to uphold. If they are not particularly interested or have the time to do the work of education, to not even educate, but to, un to undo and then reconstruct their mm -hmm. frames of thinking, you know, especially when it's liberals who are the leaders and saying, hey, distrust the government, you know, distrust the, these people of power who, you know, calling for attention to the causes of the marginalized. But they then, then turn around and say, no, but trust this vaccine that was developed in you right. know, quicker than any other. It makes sense. You have to be able to trust somebody to wait to, to, to wade through all of the specialized knowledge that's out there. And yeah. I think acknowledging that we're all having to trust somebody is a great starting point. Ooh, yeah. Leaning into your, your creatureliness, right? Yeah. You don't know everything. You are limited. And therefore, right. like we all trust different sources. That's what it is. Right.
Yeah, no, I think uh, I think that's really good. That's really good stuff in general. I think about like security theater and mm, how, um, yeah. you know, the, the things that we do to keep ourselves safe in, in an airplane or, or, or in an airport rather, or many, not all, but many of say university like COVID mitigation efforts. Like a lot of that is security theater because it's designed to make us feel better, whatever. But the real security, like what really keeps us safe is trusting one another in our day-to-day lives to not ruin right. our lives you know like and that yeah yeah and that was so, the problem in masks too is right is like mm-hmm. masks work but only if you don't touch them if you're only wearing you know single use if you're doing it correctly but that's kind of more complicated than you can just quickly communicate out there that's not right. it's not wrong but it wasn't exactly right either sure sure and i get it like i i wrap my brain around why these things are there melanie when you brought up the you know, the kind of disconnect between the way in which many folks, many liberal folks, or maybe folks on the left or whatever, of which I am one, go about talking about things like, like you said, calling out the kind of inherent oppressive structures in government or, or in seats of power and things like that. And then our entire response to COVID is largely a response that says, while all of these things are true, now is the time to submit to the powers. Right. Just believe you know, science. Right. Just believe science. And and like and and on one hand, I think that the like like public health helps us to complicate the issue. Right. Like it's a crisis. It's a crisis. Like we get it. There's some really great work uh, done by um, a sociologist named Didier Fesson. I had to read all through all this semester. I'm not a, I'm not like some expert. Like I, the only reason <laughs> I know this is because I had to read him this semester. Who like talks about like humanitarian reason and, and the politics of crisis and hmm. the way in which, you know, it's very, it's, it's very like, Ooh, well, who decides when we're in a crisis and right. how does, how does crisis management work? And, and like, that's all very important and good. I, I agree. Um, and and I appreciate that COVID and public health measures complicate our kind of government, you know, power bad, you know, individual freedom good, you know, <laughs> dichotomy. Like I like that, but I think you're you're completely right that that the other thing that this has shown us is a really kind of poverty of our thinking and poverty of our ethics when we when we when liberal and left left leaning folks by and large cannot come up with the solution or or the grammar for talking about how we're supposed to navigate this you know other than just submission other than just or i remember thinking about um i was there i was there with it because i was exhausted about it like i remember um wishing and and saying that more governors just made people do this just just make this yeah, wear a mask brute like, force it brute yeah. force it like like on one hand it's public health i get it like there's there's it's hard i understand on the other hand man we just didn't have like the conceptual grammar to to talk this through without right. making everybody outside of the liberal circle go what in the world are you guys talking about like, <laughs> like right. i thought i thought that the government was oppressive and bad. I thought the police were bad. Now you want the police to enforce a mask mandate? Like, like, like what are you? What are you doing? You know? Right. And I go, yeah. What are we doing, guys? Like, like, like what, Fair what is enough. the answer? Uh, are you guys fans of Lost? The show, you know, Lost. I have watched all of it and I love it. I don't know that Ethan has ever. I don't understand why they ended up in a church. You know, that that's fair because okay. it's really a meditation on uh, what you do when you lose everything and have to build yourself back up from nothing because uh, the showrunner had some problems at the beginning. But anyway, I thought it was about like people living on an island. You know, that's true, too. You bring up Lost because <laughs> Lost is the key to restoring our society. <laughs> is it? I've recently watched it. I never watched it because all I knew was about the polar bears. And I was like, what is, you know, I'm not interested. What is this? Smoke monster. There was a smoke monster. There was a smoke. Right. That doesn't do any more favors, you know? (laughs) Recently watched it. There is a character whose name is Saeed. 
Saeed was, uh, he was um, an interrogator. He would torture people. And uh, that's, that's what he did. He was one of the few who came to the, it's an old show. Yeah. Spoil, I'll put in spoilers. Yeah. <laughs> everyone, everyone who comes to the island is lost in their own lives. You know, they are, they're devastated people. Mm-hmm. Saeed is someone who has been lost before, and he's one of the very few, and he has found himself again. So when he comes to the island, he understands how to behave in these times of crisis. So Saeed is always kind, always respectful, always humble. Like we started talking about, Joey, holding things with an open hand, but mm-hmm. holding things very strongly. So he acts on what he believes. He doesn't hesitate, but he is always very kind and respectful. Even as he's, you know, keeping somebody captive, you know, he's still always willing to admit when he's wrong, these kinds of things. The way that Saeed interacts, the rest of them are just abysmal. You know, (laughs) they all have their strengths and weaknesses, but they're all super annoying to watch at some point. Saeed is never annoying. Hmm. And I think that's the work of the church. I think you could argue that's why they end up in a church at the end. What is the work of the church if not to instill the fruits of the spirit in our public discourse? You know, we don't have to agree with one another, right? We're not meant to be uh, aligned with any particular political party. Mm-hmm. But if we can at least improve the quality of our disagreements, which is the tagline of my science and religion group, mm-hmm. yeah. that would how much would that solve? Yeah. And we talked about this really briefly when we were talking about abortion is that like the conversation cannot even happen right now. You know, there are um, the conversation has been so poisoned that like you can't come to it with generosity. You can't come to it and disagree better about it because it is the mess that it is. Yeah. It's so charged of a of a discussion that you really can't even have the discussion. No. And and then you end up self-censoring. You end up um, not being able to be vulnerable in a conversation because you're just so afraid of the consequences of it. And that 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 happens in, with abortion. It happens with racial injustice. It happens with climate change. I mean, it happens with a lot of things that bump up against the the kind of talking points that we like to beat up on people on the right but like there's been a, a really focused effort on the right to to use certain talking points to gain power in ways that democrats just seem incapable of actually doing and, and using so there's it's hard yeah. to walk into a conversation and be able to say I know for a historical fact that like this is the strategy that's being used here. So let's question that strategy. And then also I know for a historical fact that um, this is, these are the talking points on the left that are disorganized and make no sense. So like let's engage with both critically and find our way forward from there. There, You can't get that step into a conversation a lot of the time. It takes building relationships and community, and we are really lacking in relationships and community now. Right. My take on what's needed for the abortion conversation from a science and religion perspective at the moment Mm. is to talk about Christian nationalism. Yes. Say more. Abortion is one of these things where it it comes down to science and religion in a lot of cases. You know, single issue voters Mm -hmm. who just believe, you know, this is murder. That's based on a lot of ideas from science, you know, debatable, contested, those kinds of things. That's not the conversation that I think the church can have right now. You know, it's not about whether you, what, whether you think abortion is wrong or right. I think the conversation has to be on what should the church's role be in America? Should we be focused on passing legislation that supports Christian values. And I don't, I I say that with all sympathy of those who believe, like like we were talking about earlier, that Christian values promote the good and flourishing of all people. But why should we be seeking to enact those policies, to brute force them, as we were saying? Hmm. Why shouldn't the work of the church be more to focus on making it possible for abortions to not happen? All those things, education, um, reforming society so that we can support one another better, 
um, you know, equitable pay, all these kinds of things that need to happen to support women. Why do we need to focus on passing legislation to either um, make something, to, to, to make it illegal, to make abortion illegal, if you think that abortion should be illegal? I don't think that should be the focus. That's not, that's not the strategy. I don't think that's how Christ worked. So I yeah. think Christian nationalism and that impulse to, to, to promote Christian values in that way has to be the conversation first. Yeah, yeah I, I think that, um, it, boy, if we could have that conversation in every church and have like every, especially every right, white Christian in the United States really grapple with what do we think the role of Christianity is, should be in the nation, and then grapple with what is the actual role of the different Christianities in the United States right now. Um, and But then you get back to that question of like, what do we do with the power that we have? And this is something that Ethan and I talk a lot about and we end up back at Niebuhr and, and that's where the podcast goes. But like, that's a real life question too, is if we don't think that we should be um, forcing by fiat our religious beliefs, our Christian ethic on others, then what do we do with the fact that like Christianity has a place that it could do that? Go ahead. I this, saw you I see, I see this too is the effect of science has had on mm. our theologies because we think that if there is one ethic, how, how should I say this? That science leads us to believe that all rational people should benefit and agree with these ethics if they only understood them in the same way. But as Christians, mm. we believe that the law is not good for people apart from a relationship with God apart from relationship with Christ, that it's Christ working in us. It's Christ who fulfills the law, hmm. right? Hmm. So if we think that, a, if a Christian were to think that abortion is wrong, you should first understand that that will not make sense and it may not be good for somebody who does not know Christ. So in that way, we can understand that the law is good and the law is right. And when I say law, I mean scripture. I mean, um, you know, uh, covenantally talking about the law. The law is good and right, but not apart from Christ, not apart from a relationship with God who fulfills it. So that's why Christian nationalism doesn't work. That brute forcing, it, it breaks down relationships, it breaks down trust, it breaks down, let me say it this way, Bonhoeffer, right, said Christ comes between us. So that connects us to other people so that we can have that conversation and, and show the love of God to other people. But he also said, that protects them from you. You got to right. let, you got to let Christ come in between. You know, you live your life, you know, the church should be obeying the law. But why should Christian nationalism be forcing the law on people who don't know Christ? The law can actually be harmful to those people. So I think, I think that's a great starting point in, in conversations like these, because it's, it's rigorously based on scripture. It's rigorously Christological. And I, I think it's both faithful and effective. Yeah. And I think it's something that um, uh, for people who are going, who understand things all exclusively through a Christological lens, it is like the way in the door that you have to have. Speaking yeah. with their terms, meeting their criteria, McIntyre, right? Mm -hmm. Going according to their criteria. Yeah. Oh, gosh. It's, oh, man, I tried so hard to do that. Um, uh, through so much of my life, but especially when I was uh, in the pulpit serving as a pastor uh, and just found that it was uh, like soul deadening to me <laughs> because I'm constantly having to like abandon the, my way of understanding something to then take on somebody else's. And it's fine if you're doing that for a discussion, right? You know, it's fine to like have that moment, but you can't do it all day, every day. And so that, that ends up being the, the challenge. Yeah. And that's, and that's why the church can't wait for times of crisis to do this work. It has to be mm. a little bit every day because formation takes a lifetime. Yeah, it is, yeah. It is hard work. We, we just had Grace and John on and they talked about yes. in their congregations, they um, aren't always able to advocate as full-throatedly as they want to because they know that ends the conversation, right? Right. And I think that it's, this is something I always get caught up in, um, especially because Ethan believes so strongly in, in um, 
the value of being that kind of prophetic voice that just says like, this is, this is the way, right? This is the way that we, to holiness. Um, and then you have other people, like, I just don't know how to free people from the powers and principalities that hold them. And if I did, we'd have a different world, but I feel like, and I could be wrong. It is the responsibility of white Christians in particular, because it's white Christian nationalism that's shaping the country. And I think it's Mm -hmm. important for us to name that. Um, It's important for us to be the people who do step in and try to have those discussions that are going to open the door for people to think in a new and different way. You know, try to have those discussions where we set aside our, our, um, convinced, self-convinced way that like, we know we're right. We think we believe mm-hmm. the right way. And then say, well, you know, let's look at it from scripture. Let's look and see like what the ethic actually is and where we're getting these ideas from. And as we engage with people kind of over and over again, build up those relationships, we can come to these better understandings and we can build better community. And then out of that, we'll have hopefully better policies, better dialogue, all that kind of stuff. And we do, we did need to do it before we got to the crisis point. And now that we're at the crisis point, it is so hard to do it. (laughs) And so I, yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't have a solution. Again, if I did, the world would be a different place. Right. Right. Speaks again to just the importance of diversity in in the body of Christ, because you need people to have those positions here. I can help the people over here, but still, you know, be provocative enough to get the attention of people over on this side of the spectrum. I guess mm-hmm. the podcast holding up your hands doesn't help. It's, I, <laughs> I talk on my hands so much. <laughs> right. All, all things to all people doesn't mean the same person can be all things to all people. You can't. You have to work out of your identity to work with the people around you, you know, being here so that they can catch up here. But yeah, all people so we can be all things. Yeah. And and I think the other piece is you have to remain committed to that, right? You don't get to, I I think this is the, uh, what we've seen, especially since um, the, we had a great movement of, of racial justice reckoning two summers ago. And uh, you know, public opinion has gone kind of back to the corners we were in. We didn't continue the work, you know, we, we made our signs, we did our things and now we're tired. <laughs> so we don't do it anymore. Um, and gosh, I remember reading discipleship in, um, in seminary and being like, you know, Bonhoeffer holds us to a ridiculous standard. And like, what is he talking about? And <laughs> like, I appreciate your brain Dietrich, but this is dumb. Nobody can it's do It's just this. friendship. <laughs> it's just being friends, whatever. Um, it, it's it's no big deal. It's easy. Uh, it's also incredibly difficult, and that's is you have to be engaged in this over and over and over again, um, and and you have to build muscles. And yeah, and I I think that we we're at this place right now. Um, or no, then we not generalize. A generalized for myself, I have realized that I don't have muscles built up to do like the really difficult work that needs to get done right now. Um, and that I also have not made a plan for how I'm going to build up those muscles. You know, I have not figured out how I'm going to like build that generosity, how I'm going to be able to engage in difficult conversations. And so that leaves me feeling really powerless it leaves me in this place of, I can't change the laws of the land right now. So I don't know what I can actually do. I, I am not a force, a political force all by myself. I'm not connected to a community that could be. And even when I want to have a difficult conversation, I'm not prepared for it. And so I feel really incapable. But feeling incapable is not an excuse for remaining incapable. And so... Yeah. yeah. I mean, psychological studies show, right, that the most helpful people have the strongest boundaries, right? That's true. You, you can't help people if you're not um, setting it up for the help to be helpful. That's true. It, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, I, yeah. It's, it's just a fun, that's a funny way to bring it back around to at the beginning of the conversation is that like a psychological study, so something got information gotten through like methods of science um, and put out through the scientific academy is something that can help shape how we see what is good in the world. 
and can help us figure out how to like better be in the world. Right. Um, the facts and values are not separate and science and our, our theology should always be in reiterative conversations about indicatives and imperatives. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really key. Oh, that's great. So we are close to an hour. Um, I think this has been not the conversation I had planned, but a great conversation and I loved it. Uh, anything that either one of you want to revisit? Any thoughts that have kind of come up that you want to to make sure we check back in on in this last little bit? Oh, I hope I hope there's something in there that your listeners uh, are interested in. Um, <laughs> I mean, please post, post my uh, email or contact info because I love talking about this stuff all day long. So if anybody wants to shoot something to me, I'd be happy to pass on, you know, my favorite resources or whatever. Um, yeah. 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 Thanks so much to both of you for having me on. This was my first podcast. Woo! I've had a great time. Uh, yeah, you did great. Uh, and thank you for agreeing to be on and for um, like jumping with both feet into like really difficult conversations. Like th- that's what we do. We find the most difficult thing to talk about and then do it. <laughs> oh, that's why you and I were such good friends. I know. <laughs> It's a, yeah, I miss, um, for all of our listeners, this is what it's like to like be in, uh, studying beyond college or even like in college, if you didn't go to college, like you are trying to engage with these really big ideas and nobody does it perfectly, but it's a lot of fun. So I love that. Um, well, thank you again, Melanie and Ethan, you want to sign us off? Sure. Friends, thanks for listening. This has been an episode of what the hell is a pastor? We are Ethan and Joe and Melanie. And we will see you next time. What the Hell is a Pastor is a part of the Disruptive Disciples podcast network. Our theme song is written by Joe Shomolf, performed by Joe Shomolf, Ian Uriola, and Paul Uriola, and produced by Paul Uriola. Email us at wthackisapastor at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash disruptive disciples, on Twitter at WTHIAP, and on Patreon at patreon.com slash WTHIAP, where you can get access to pillow talk, merch, signed cards, custom essays, and so much more. Thanks for listening, and improve the quality of your disagreements, friends. Oh gosh, nope, gonna, we're back from that cliff, okay. <laughs> um, <laughs>